Welcome to the Recycler Podcast. My name is David Connett, and I'm joined today by Beth McKee, General Counsel at Static Control, and a little later by our resident guest, Sultan Matthias, the Director of International Business Development at GM Technology. Welcome, Beth. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here. So, Beth, what's your take on the news that the VA has been rejected? I'm very pleased with the news that, you know, Static Control had, you know, argued that the EU VA as drafted was not going to be fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory for everyone to make an impact. We do feel that it would have been great if they could have, if the OEMs and the remanufacturers represented everybody and not just the small select few. We are looking forward to what may come and hope that the regulations that are uh, brought forth actually meet the objectives of the circular economy. You know, uh, our CEO said in his like LinkedIn post, I think, you know, um, in every comment to somebody else, it basically, he said, you know, it would have been great if everybody could come together and do something that would have benefited the end users, the consumers, but it just, the players couldn't get it done. As I kind of commented on too, it's, it, they couldn't get it done in you know, a fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory way um, mm. that would include all the remanufacturers, all the component suppliers, and not just that limited few. It's quite clear from the information that we have that there are probably around 3,000 companies that sell re- you know, are in the in the market. Ten years ago, they would have been remanufactured almost exclusively in admittedly small quantities. But today, they still remanufacture some product. But yes, they are selling new build product. They are selling OEM product. They are selling printers. Their business model has changed. And these are the companies that are going to survive. But what you're going to see, I think, is this legislation is bring out the right to repair. You're going to see repair shops fixing things, just like you did 30, 40, 50 years ago. And that's going to be the big change. You're not going to make something, use it for two years and throw it away, whether it's a TV set or a washing machine or, or whatever. These things are going to be repaired. And how that helps the environment is that because you repair more, you will make less. And hopefully also, I mean, you look at it, I don't know about you, but I remember having this vacuum cleaner that my mom had growing up and it was one of the canister models, right? And that thing lasted like 25 years, right? And it sounded like a jet engine. (laughs) It did. I mean, it might have had a little bit of like duct tape here and there. Then my grandfather helping her could always find spare parts for it and, you know, fix it up. The thing is to kind of go to your point, you know, the corresponding decision by the European Commission, you know, not going forward with the voluntary agreement, then coming out at the same at the same time where the European Commission is saying, okay, and you're not allowed to make things stop working too soon or arbitrarily. Two things in conjunction are really going to be what drives that innovation for people to then be able to repair and do things and have hopefully good quality products that then they can continue to use their full value and money's worth. Life cycle. And, and the thing is, the OEMs are global players. They're not going to change a business model for the European market. This change is going to have a ripple through everywhere. It does. I mean, you look at the European market, right, and you you see the different regulations that come forward, and they're really leading the way when it comes to a lot of the environmental regulations, 
a lot of the reuse and recyclable regulations. They're really being at the forefront this time. It might be taking a little longer than everybody wants. And I am hoping that the fair and reasonable legislation will come through more quickly than past legislation, um, because I think in the end, it's what's best for the consumer. It's what's best for the environment and it's what's best for all the businesses that can also be. I'm sure over the coming weeks, we're going to hear more and more about this. All right. Thanks for your time. Uh, Take care. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks a lot, Beth. Appreciate it. I'm now joined by our resident guest, Sultan Matthias, the Director of International Business Development at GM Technology. Welcome, Sultan. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure to come back. So here we are. We had the amazing news about the EU and the voluntary agreement and ICT legislation. What's your first take on it? You know, this news has been due since long months or, or, or years. Yeah. We've, been, we've, been, we've been all watching closely the development of the voluntary agreement and, and see what's going to happen. So I think it was not unexpected. First of all, I think it's a very thought-provoking news. I have to tell you, the first thing I've done, I went to LinkedIn and I shared the news with my fellow leaders of the industry and basically put the questions out there that should be be asked. I guess everybody's asking, is this a drastic change for our industry? What does it mean? You know, what does it mean? for remanufacturers? What does it mean for OEMs? What does it mean for new built manufacturers? What will be short, long-term effects, side effects, all that all that thing. So I, I put this out there and it was great to see the guys are picked up on the topic very fast. And I think uh, there are some, some interesting comments going on. Obviously, there are different opinions, different thoughts on it. But the news is, um, I think, is exciting. You know, I always say change is always an opportunity. So whatever change happens, and, you know, if you're smart <laughs> and if you watch what you do, then probably some doors or windows will be opening. I always think of remanufacturers a bit like farmers. If you talk to some farmers, they'll tell you that, oh, the wind is too strong, the rain is too wet, you know, not enough sun, too much sun. And it's really hard to get an objective view of how the farmer is doing. Easiest way to find out if a farmer has been successful, you say, okay, what car are you driving? Mm-hmm. So if he's driving an old pickup, you know he's really struggling. But if he's uh, driving a BMW or a Mercedes, you ask him when he changed it. And if he's changed it in the last two years, you just know that farmer's doing well. <laughs> and it's the same with remanufacturers. Nothing is going to change today. This is about the start of our future. If you take it that the industry started back in 1990, not late 80s, We've come to the end of the beginning. This new legislation that's going to come, the market is going to change in a way that the motor industry changed in the 1990s, where manufacturers had to liaise with aftermarket players in terms of parts, service manuals. Yeah, it's not free or anything like that, but every garage can access the part, the manuals to repair cars that they don't see very often, you know, and I think the market is going to change and it's going to change for everybody. The OEM model is going to have to radically change because they're going to have to embrace keeping product, you know, printers, copiers in the market much longer. They're going to have to embrace having parts uh, reusable. 
I think they're going to have to embrace firmware that locks out reusable or reused product. And that whole market is going to change. And I guess the challenge now over the next couple of years while this legislation evolves is how do we as an industry where you've got the OEMs who are basically the leaders because they make the hardware devices that we're all trying to support, uh, the new build manufacturers and the reuse companies. How do we shape that legislation? How do we all come together and find a model that is best for the consumer because if you read the detail of what came out this is all about the consumer being able to be green sustainable get stuff repaired so how can we come together and find a model that meets the consumer's needs and we can all share it my first reaction was like obviously we have two let's say two groups or so two different type of reaction to it you know you have you have the farmers that are driving the pickup and they say, oh, this is great. Everything's going to change. Come on. Yeah, great. Fantastic. Yeah. We're all going to have a, a, a beautiful regulating market and everything is going to be fine and it's going to rain when I want and it's going to stop raining when I don't want. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, you have the other school was saying, hmm, a VA could have been better. A good VA could have been better. It would have been a quicker win for the industry. It would have been um, a, be- a better choice. But I guess that was just not the option, so they had to go with the second best. What I see there is, is, is like you say, the general direction of this whole movement of VA or regulation is to make the market greener, to make the planet the winner and the, and the consumers the winner. Yeah, but I, I don't think the EU is picking on the printer industry. This is about the winds of change across everything. Whatever you physically make and put on the market, and it's going to affect everything from building materials, fast fashion, everything. So, And that's really the big change. That's mm. I think for the OEMs, it's probably the, the biggest change because they're really going to have to think their, their business models. That may well actually bring about some change in the OEM landscape because mm-hmm. the cost of changing may well outweigh the, the, the benefits of being in the market, especially for the some of the smaller OEMs. Sure, sure. I think companies that are making new build are probably going to have to rethink their strategy to be in the market. I think that for the reuse sector, again, they are going to have to be have to probably start to rethink about how do I liaise and remanufacture new build product, which historically has been the door is closed on that topic. Yeah, you know, even the supply channel. Typically, products are developed to remanufacture OEM consumables. Now they're going to have to start embracing the the toner for the XYZ printer, the OPC, the chip, etc. Even just thinking about chips, do we actually need chips? Do we need to change a chip every time you remanufacture something? Could it have an embedded circuit that just gets reset and you pay the OEM or the manufacturer, not necessarily you know, the OEM, you pay the cartridge manufacturer a, a small reset fee? There are so many ideas and concepts that could evolve as we go forward. The legislation might be basic. We have an opportunity to rebuild the industry fit for the 21st century. And I think yeah. that's an exciting opportunity. The, at the end of the day, we're, the industry is made up of business people. Yeah. And the question is not if you play or you don't play. The question is how you play. And I think at, at the end of the day, when you look at the market and you say you're playing on a regulated market or unregulated market, both of them are markets and you need to decide how you play. 
Yeah. And different circumstances, you have to play differently. In my view, a regulated market probably means more stability, more predictability, more measurability, more you can you can plan probably more. In a business sense, it's more of a calculated risk type of game versus an unregulated market that we have been have been on in the last 20-something years. And a lot of businesses have been built on finding those opportunities. The other thing is obviously the two, the two big question, how quick the change is going to be and how much the change is going to be. I mean, are we looking at one year? Are we looking at three years? Are we looking at five years? I think the jury's out on that. I've seen a few comments that it could take four to six years. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that could be an outcome. I've also seen legislation could be on the table and in and implemented within two, two and a half years with probably a, a review three or four years down the road. The thing you've got to remember is that these discussions have been going on round and round in Europe since 2010, 2011. Yeah. So there's an awful lot of information that's available. The JRC has a huge amount of data. You know, everybody has got data. It's not like you're having to start from square one. It is already. So it is about how quickly they want to bring the legislation to the table. I think the announcement yesterday was quite clear. They picked three categories that I think they can do quite quickly. So ICT, mm-hmm. which includes printers, but it's everything electronic, the clothing sector, the fashion sector, and the the building material sector. I think those are things where they've got an awful lot of information and can act quickly and bring that about. And I think things like your iPhone, being able to get it repaired, the fact that Apple or phone, well, not just iPhones, but all phones, but the fact that the phone manufacturer will have to support it for longer. I've changed phones so many times only because the manufacturer has stopped supporting that model. Mm-hmm. Get any updates and the apps don't work anymore and things like that. Nothing wrong with the phone, you know, and, and that's the frustration. And so all of that is going to change. And if that model is going to change in Europe, then it's sort of going to pick up around the world because, you know, manufacturers not going to have product A for the rest of the world and product B for Europe. No, absolutely. And as of the as of the whole regulation, obviously many say it's like, yeah, until this regulation comes into effect and OEMs and everybody does whatever whatever it wants and it's a wild west out there. Well, I think, well, you know me a little bit, David, I'm always a glass half full kind of guy. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, I had a conversation on this topic, actually, and I just said, look, if you look at the, the whole regulation story, I look at it like a triangle. So you have a base already. There is the Green Deal. We have the Circular Economy Action Plan. We have a general green procurement criteria. We have REACH. We have WE. We have, we have a bunch of stuff already done on the, on, on the bottom. And we look at how long it took to take plastic bags and, and single-use plastic cups out of the market. And yes, it took 20 years, I think, or something like that. But already there's a lot of things done. So I think it's more of a plug-and-play stuff. You know, if they if they look at the look at our industry, they look at the um, the other industries you mentioned, the, the you know the fast fashion industry, the research, the assessment, the framework is done. So I really don't think that it's going to take four to six years. It's probably a decision of of um, taking the existing base and the, the existing framework using the criteria of the Green Deal, of the Circular Economy Action Plan, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and doing the Control C, Control V action on the keyboard. Yeah. Our spy in Brussels. Okay, that starts well. <laughs> if he listens to this podcast, he'll probably be horrified that I'm going to name him, but we're not. <laughs> His view 
and he, he understands all this. His view is that draft legislation could be available as early as next summer, but possibly towards the end of next year. At the end of the day, it has to go through the council and then the parliament, etc. And then it goes out for a period of consultation and then comes into law. And I think it's going to be quicker rather than later because also the EU is driving them. The subtext of this is that you're going to move away from global supply chains to near source supply chains. So, yes, if you look at our industry, you know, the toner and the OPCs will come from the toner and the OPCs factory. But maybe instead of production being done in Asia or other parts of the world, it's going to be done in the European Union. That is a macro trend. Near sourcing is a macro trend, just like digitalization. It's a clear macro trend for me. And that's really an attractive proposition for somebody that I think if the OEMs are going to get into this market, they're going to have to buy into this market. They're not going to set up a factory from scratch to do all of this. They're going to buy in. They're going to see who's big, good in the market and they're going to buy into it. You know, because they will be buying into the expertise that's there. And near sourcing will mean job relocation, probably from Asia to Europe, because half of all remanufactured cartridges now sold in Europe come from outside of Europe. So mm. you're really going to have to justify the, the, the green credentials of product. I mean, on this one, I was actually thinking on the side effects or the side opportunities that this regula- regulation will generate, because... It lines up with what you say. What about the tech that it's going to come with this? Because, you know, we talk about a green passport of products placed on the market, which we already see in, for example, electronic cars, electric cars, car batteries. Uh, they're going with the battery passport because they're obviously highly contaminant and they have to be tracking that. You know, I've recently finished my blockchain studies. Lots of, I've, I've seen a lots of proof of provenance projects being put on blockchain. So that's another opportunity for our industry of what tech this will bring with it and how you're going to prove it, how you're going to track this. And then sitting on the top of that comes my other favorite topic is how you're going to sell the story in terms of marketing and who's going to be the guy who's going to turn around and say, mine is remanufactured and this is the proof. And this is how I'm going to deliver this message to the to the guy that is sourcing it in the government through official tenders or the end users who's watching his Facebook feed or, or whatever other channels that he's on. And what tact this will bring in terms of, you know, selling the story. And it's interesting, really, because if you look at the evolution of the Atira certified label, mm-hmm. I mean, that in itself is a, a beginning of the process. It it says if this has got it on, this label is on it, it stands for certain things. Yeah. And, you know, and that can evolve and become a, a definitive product across the whole market. I think yeah, there are yeah. lots of opportunities. I, I think talking about Atira, I think, you know, this legislation now is probably an opportunity for Atira to take a lead in what might be happening in terms of the consultation process and input. But not just on behalf of remanufacturers, I think there's an opportunity to engage with OEMs and with new build manufacturers so that we can help shape the new market. Yeah, I mean, there are so many topics we could, you know, we could do a a bunch of episodes. I mean, mean, we could go, we could go OEM reman collaborations. What will generate on that front? You, You see... Um, you know, Ethereum's role changing because of that of, of that regulation market. 
yeah. yeah, there are there are so many things, and then you know there, then there's the other elephant in the room is like what the reg- regulation is going to be. Well, it's going to be a percentage, how much, how that regulation will be banned on certain things. Uh, that's all up in the air still. Yeah, the devil is in the detail. Theoretically, 90% of cartridges could be reused at this moment in time. But in new devices coming on the market, that reuse is probably going to be to 100%. The key to reuse is in the design phase of a new product. Yeah. That that's where really life cycle analysis designed for reuse rather than designed to prevent reuse. That's really the the future. Coming back to it here, I think with uh, the upcoming conference, I think there's an opportunity to take some time out, invite the OEMs, invite representatives from you know manufacturers of new builds. And we're not going to solve the the problems in one meeting, but let's explore what the issues might be. Because yeah. even if we don't have the answers. If we understand the issues, we're starting to take a step forward. Hmm. I mean, the first step is always to talk about it. Always better to talk. No, and that fits, you know, pretty much nicely in, in the next possible topic of what about pricing, how this will affect pricing. I think that it's early days. Strategically, if you have to build a product that's going to be on the market for, say, 10 to 20 years, and bearing in mind now that Miele, the German household goods dishwashers, uh-huh. washing machine, they now design stuff to be on the market for 20 years. If you're going into a shop, it is not the cheapest washing machine or dishwasher. But over the life of 20 years, it, it probably is the cheapest. And I think if you're building copiers or printers and you've got to support it for 10 to 20 years, the price of that product will increase. As so as the value. I mean, what I'm, what what we've seen in our in our industry, it's it's basic mathematics. If you drive the prices down, you drive the value out of the industry. Yeah, yeah. If that regulation, if all that's what's going on is giving value back to remanufactured product, it makes the product more valuable. Then pricing will follow. If you fast forward 20 years, I would envisage that less hardware devices are being sold. Hmm. The ones that are being sold will have very much a higher value and will last a lot longer. And it may well even be that the printer then is something unrecognizable. It, the printer could be, I don't know, part of your household entertainment system. It could be part of your office communications device. Who knows? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, to print is a simple function. I don't see that the paperless office is going to be here in 20 years' time because we still need paper for contracts, for all sorts of things. So I think what's going out of the print market at the moment is duplication. You know, the days when you mm. print 12 copies of a, you know, the agenda for a meeting, you know, you now just email it to everybody and you've got it on your tablet or your laptop or whatever. You can quote me. I think print volume is like energy. It never yeah. disappears. It transforms. Yes. <laughs> it I, changes. I I, I quite agree. So I think less devices, higher priced, delivering higher value, and they will be in the uh, market a lot longer. There's a whole new market of OEMs that are going to be doing reuse. You're going to have independent sector doing reuse. And there will have to be collaboration because the barriers that get put up, like we're not going to sell you the spare parts or we're going to use firmware to block you those will disappear because if you look at the horizontal things that are coming 
with the legislation, those sort of market blocking tactics yeah. are going to go. And that will deliver, I think, a whole new ecosystem of reuse in the market. Turning back a little bit to the origins, I mean, some of, some of the guys who are listening to this probably smiling that we might be looking at a new CX cartridge. <laughs> we, might, we might be looking at a new high-value device that is, uh, you know, money is going back to hardware and longer life cycles, higher page yields. We yeah. might be we might be looking at an, an SX or an HP 4000. <laughs> if you look at the evolution of the printer, the early ones, we're out in the market five to ten years. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the, the model swapping, changing evolution was more done to keep the aftermarket at bay because yeah. every new printer that comes out, the aftermarket is a year, 18 months. Behind. Yeah, I remember at, at one point around 2011, 12, we were looking at printer life cycles of HP printers down to six to nine months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember the CX, I've been around long enough now. <laughs> And there was a point I was collecting CX cartridges. In fact, people were giving them away because they'd stopped remanufacturing and all the rest of it. And that big OPC, pure aluminium, I was yeah. like, take those out, get them melted down and making money out of it. That's a long time ago. Yes, I think the market will change. A whole new ecosystem will, will evolve. And I think that it isn't just going to be printers. I think if you're in the reuse effectively the repair sector, you are going to be doing mobile phones. You are going to be doing communication devices. You are are going to be even television sets because inside they're all going to be modular because that's the only way they it'll be either a new motherboard in the back of the TV or a new screen or a new power supply. You're going to be doing that. They, They are going to be repairable. And probably I think the tax strategy for reuse will be advantageous. You know, a lower rate of VAT for reuse products and a higher rate of VAT for new products and probably an interim punitive VAT rate for products that are not reusable. Mm-hmm. The question now for a lot of companies now is, I think, okay, so what we do in the meantime until all this is happening Obviously, we all have to deal with day-to-day business issues. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to comment with you and and bring into the conversation is, you know, the pricing that we see across the market in terms of raw material pricing, uh, transport pricing, labor cost, availability that affects pricing. So I think there's a lot of of movement going on recently on, on pricing, be it hardware or consumable. I see that it's probably a, an, another opportunity that is more immediate for some of the companies to look at their product, look at their pricing benchmark locally on their own market yeah. and take advantage of the situation and recalculate those costs and recalculate those pricing and look at look at the organization and, and run it more on margin than turnover and stop trying to compete with Amazon pricing and, and, and other competitors that are not relevant on your market. I see a lot of differences uh, between regions and I see an immediate opportunity of, of looking at pricing because the market is out there and, and, and it seems the market is ready to accept a higher pricing because that's just what's happening across everything. At this moment in time, and, it, and it's no fun for anybody, but Everything is more expensive from the fuel in your car to the energy you consume at home to 
the food you buy in the supermarket. Everything is more expensive. I mean, depending on where you are in Europe, inflation is somewhere between 5.5 and 8.5, maybe 9%. And nobody is sort of forecasting that that's going to change anytime soon. The energy situation is, you know, further compounded because of the the, the war between Russia and Ukraine. And there will now be a, a drive away from fossil fuel based energy to, you know, renewable energy. And all of those things have to be factored. Everybody in the market has to look at their business model, their products and basically rethink what they're doing. I think that's also making the, the entire industry that the players are getting more niche and more specialized on things that they are best at doing. That's good in, in all senses. And just the thought out there that supply chain issues, availability issues make pricing irrelevant in many cases. If you haven't got it, then you have to pay the price if you want it. Yeah. The supply chain issues are affecting the OEMs hugely. I've heard everything from three days of stock to 26, 28, 30 week delays on new product, millions of euros. Of millions of euros on back order, yeah. Delivered, and, and that's the OEM. If you start to track the OEM numbers on a quarterly by quarterly basis, you almost know when the, the boat has arrived with their stock because the sales are up. And when the boat hasn't gone, you know, sales are down. And, and again, this is where near sourcing really kicks in because if you're in the aftermarket and you've got the product, you can sell it. And it's not about the price. It is about the availability. Yeah, exactly. It's not the question of how much it is, is if, if you've got it. Talking about pricing specifically, I can't see any and supply chain. I can't see the supply chain getting better anytime soon. I think those supply chain issues are going to manifest themselves well into next year. Yeah, you know, I'm sitting in Spain. So, you know, throwing a, an example out there, um, shipping a full truck across Europe cost around 2,000, 2,100 euros in the last three, four, five years. Last week I sent out one and it cost 5,800 euros. We've got a container in the UK that we would like to get brought to Germany, but the cost of doing that is greater than the value of a yeah. in the container. Not, not a good moment no. <laughs> to, to move that container right now. So we'll just leave it where it is for the time being, yeah. But I can't see that changing anytime soon. So in terms of in Europe, near sourcing, that creates an opportunity in the market. So the main thing is, can you get your toner? Can you get your OPCs? Can you get your ink, your chips, etc., so that you can meet the demand in the near source market? Yeah, globally, it's you know we don't have more containers and we don't have more container ships running. And, and the price of fuel, nobody's going to send a ship from North America or Europe full of empty containers. Talking about the price of fuel, obviously the effect of the war and 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 the situation in Europe, the price of energy as well, but. You know, the price of fuel now generated in Spain, France, general strikes of transport companies yeah. where, you know, right now I'm looking at, I think we are in 10 days now where we have constant transport issues and still, especially on container shipments, loading and unloading, both is an issue. On the good side, though, um, Spain has recently introduced their uh, import controls. Not really the right term, is it? Because the legislation has always been there, but they brought it together at the point of obtaining pre-clearance, which is, I think, really good news. That, that means if you're importing the product, you've got to have your WE registration, your ROHS, 
compliance, etc. You, you've got to have the details of your um, take back schemes and all that's got to be in your product folder and your authorized representative. And so it's all there. If you've got all of that, you'll get the, the green preclearance. And if you haven't, you've got a lot of people to talk to at customs. Yeah, exactly. What happened in Spain is they answered the question that the, the regulation has been there. We have we we have uh, we have reach we have we have all that stuff there and the question was always like okay who's watching it <laughs> you know everybody everybody put the 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 we and and the reach logos and and put the put the reach uh, uh, compliant uh, logos on their brochures and products but nobody really watched it so I think now the important move that Spain did is uh, is to give it to real market surveillance market surveillance. Historically, it's always been down to national authorities, whereas now market surveillance is an EU-wide activity. Taking Spain as an example, if they block an import, let's say cartridges that might, they're labelled as remanufactured, but they're new build or they haven't got the right markings on, they're not labelled with the authorised, you know, represented, things like that. If they get blocked in Spain, then that's blocked EU-wide. Mm-hmm. It's the same as somebody blocks it in Hungary or Italy, whatever, it gets blocked EU-wide. I guess that's a really good thing. Because of these gaps in the, the legislation, product can come on the market where it isn't we-registered, there is no take-back scheme, and that means then that those products, that importer is free-riding on everybody else that is compliant. I mean, nobody likes to pay taxes, but free-riding is bad for everybody because it means... Those that are compliant and paying are paying an undue cost that somebody else isn't. You know, yes. Some calculations last year that for a typical cartridge that could be as much as eight euros. If you look at the price between a, a free riding new build and a, a remanufactured cartridge, that eight euros is maybe taking away the competitive difference. Just make the point though that not all new build cartridges that come in are free riding. You know, a lot of people of course. are paying a lot. I think as far as pricing is concerned, everybody has to look at their business model, do their local analysis. Don't compare against Amazon. You know, what are people paying in the local market? And that may mean putting your prices up. And pretty much everybody is reluctant because although when we all get together again in May in Prague, you know, we'll all say, oh, yes, we compete against the OEM. But actually, most people are just competing against their competitor down the road. But I think pricing has to go up. And and that will vary from country to country, city to city. But the, the pricing will increase and become more rewarding. Because if we are going to go to this new world order, imaging you have to make the profits to make the investment to do it yeah ultimately price is always connected to value and yeah. if the if the circumstances and if those factors make the the uh, reuse repairable remanufacture a product more valuable price will price will follow and you know back to the surveillance also it's important to see the the price factor of you know if you keep bringing in single use products and there's a cost of dealing with those yeah. if you put in measures of uh, controlling and that importation that will also have effect changes in that cost structure of how you deal with those. Now in Spain, it's a, it's an interesting story. I've, I've been I've been looking looking into it a little bit, and and the organization that is going to control this, it's a serious organization established in the 30s. Actually, it's a, it's a fun story. It's it's originating from controlling the quality of oranges that is exported from Spain, and uh, there were inspectors checking the the maturity of those of those oranges. 
Um, and obviously then it, it, it went on to other sectors such as toys, such as other products where, where consequences of, of inadequate products are important. I'm expecting there will be serious, serious uh, vigilance on that. That will also change the cost structure of all those single-use plastics that we, we have to deal with it. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely what is going to happen. I was going to ask you, as you have spies everywhere, David, <laughs> you just mentioned your spy in Brussels and probably... He knows the guy who has been escorted out of the cannon building in Japan that we discussed the last podcast. So what are your OEM spies are saying? What do you think the OEMs are doing nowadays in terms of reuse, repairability, in terms of consolidation, how the how the OEMs are? Okay, two or three of the big OEMs are really looking at how they can engage in reuse, what the strategy will be how they're going to do it. Are they going to go it alone and set up their own collection programs, reuse centers, etc.? Or are they going to go out into the market and collaborate with existing players? And obviously there are competition issues around that because you can't have, say, GM technology servicing several OEMs unless you really have the controls in place. Some OEMs, Lexmark is one, that are really looking at the value proposition of their product. Mm -hmm. So you're already seeing that, you know, their hardware reuse, you know, they're looking at devices being in the market for at least 10 years. They're already making those steps. And then you've got some other OEMs don't have a clue what's going on. And probably two of the biggest, you know, I mean, I saw recently that Canon said they want to be number one in the market. Well, the only way you're going to be number one in the market is to take market share from from someone. And ultimately, that will mean taking market share from your biggest customer, Hewlett Packard. So I'm not sure how they can do that and meet the sustainability goals uh, and everything else. For some of them, the journey has already started. For the others, you know, this morning's boardroom meeting will probably be quite enlightening. You know, somebody now has to, you know, write a report for the senior leaders and say, okay, this is what's going to happen and this is how we're going to do it. And the challenge is, are the OEMs going to embrace this with a view to making it work? Or are they going to fight like hell to delay it to keep their model? And I think this is really where organizations like Atira can now start holding OEMs to account. From this moment on, every sharp practice, every bad practice will really signpost that OEM as a bad actor in the market. I'm not saying they've got to lose money or, you know, give away the crown jewels, but they've got to start thinking about how do we make money out of these changes? There's a number that goes around that says a billion cartridges are sold every year, inkjet, laser, etc. Probably more than that, but who knows? Imagine if 90% of those or 80% or even 50%, 500 million of those are reused each year. First of all, if they're reused, you don't have to make a new one. So there's an immediate environmental sustainability benefit. The second thing is, if you're not having to make so many, you can downsize your manufacturing capacity. What are you going to do with all those factories? And the second thing is, if you're facilitating reuse, you know, and you've got, I don't know, two euros, three euros per reuse, because of a reset code on the the chip or something like that. There's 1.5 billion euros of royalty money that you've had to do nothing for, and it comes in on on the OEM's bottom line. So I think OEMs are going to have to start to rethink 
just how they're going to be in the market and operate. Bear in mind that there's a good way of doing it and there's a bad way of doing it. But I think every OEM now has got to be put up as a bad actor where they do bad things. Yeah. It's a business model change is brewing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and we have been we have been going through a few cycles of this business model. You know, when we yeah. when we moved from product A to B to subscription models or or cost per copy service models, I think is is now now probably the the reuse uh, business model is coming into play. I mean, when it when it when it comes to OEMs, like you said, I think they have to rethink first of all what's going to happen with printing, yeah. because another thing has to be said. If you look at OEMs, they are all in very different places right now. You look at Canon with their diverse uh, product portfolio, a part of printing. You, you, you know, you look at Konica Minolto with their medical aspirations. You, you, all the all the OEMs are in different places, and they all have a bit uh, uh, an industry which is declining since a few years. So they need to figure out first of all what's happening with printing in the short midterm. Then they have to rethink their business model. So I guess when they see the news coming out of Brussels, they will say, okay, now this. Yeah, diversity, diversification are going to be key challenges. There's one OEM that has shareholders. And for a couple of years now, I've been this particular person, we've been talking about the VA. They were desperate for the VA to go through. And he said, at the end of the day, we run this company for the benefit of the shareholders. So it's a dividend and all the rest of it. Yeah. So if we're going to change the business model, so we have to be more socially responsible for want of a better phrase. He said, we're only going to change. If, if we're legislated to change because we have to go back to the shareholders and say, sorry, there's a smaller dividend or you know, we can't do this because this legislation. He said, and we're going to lose investors. Yeah. But equally, he acknowledged that when they change the model and they are more socially aware, they will attract new investors who will see the opportunities in the future because reuse is like a train. You hear it coming and it's only in the last minute it hits you when you're still on the railway line. For a lot of OEMs, they can hear the train coming, but soon it's going to hit them face on unless they, uh, they get off the track. I expect, I expect increased prices. I expect a, a better market, but probably fewer players. You know? Probably, yeah, consolidation will, will has to continue. One area where I do think you might see growth is the small sort of retail place where they will refill your cartridge, where they will repair your uh, mobile phone, uh, etc. You know, they will repair your printer and they'll be repairing other things. Um, so I, I think the repair shop culture will actually emerge much stronger. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, People repairing all sorts of things, you know. I mean, you know, everything from you know the electric kettle to your TV, just a small size. Our very first TV was a black and white thing, and you hung a great big magnifying glass over the uh, the CRT so that you could see the picture, and it always broke down. Chap used to come round and fix it. Now I don't know his name, but his we always called him Mr. Flick <laughs> because. He was always cutting bits of wire and flicking it on the floor. And he had the solder and iron, he'd be soldering, and then he'd flick the solder. And, you know, and there's always a pool of solder and a pool of, you know, a few bits of wire that he does. But, but those things were priced out of the market because of the industrial process. And it's just not economically viable to repair something when you could buy a new one even cheaper. And I think that will that will change. That will come back to repair centers. It's funny, I, I, I remember back, you know I'm from Hungary, 
And my uncle was Mr. Flicker. He had a business. He repaired TVs and uh, VHS uh, players. Yeah. And when I studied electrotechnics in in high school, I did my practice uh, my practice uh, with him. Yeah. So his business was going to homes, repairing TVs on site. Obviously, his business has has gone bust because we had uh, the LCD screens coming on with uh, with modules, uh, yeah. and they became unrepairable. So if if regulation and if the tendencies go back to repairable, higher value hardware, these business models are going to come back. And I think that that will apply to everything, you know, uh, and I think that's a good thing because it means, you know, the money stays in the economy. You're not making something, throwing it away when it's broken, you can get it repaired. So you're not having to to make something and that's just going to be good for sustainability because I think we overproduce everything from food, you know. I saw a TV program where they were talking about the supermarket donates all the surplus food, you know, to a charity, which has got a nice feel-good ring to it. But really and truly, why are they buying so much food that they have to either throw it away or give it away? And the farmers having to produce that at the very lowest price possible, and and so on. And and I think this legislation will bring about a culture change, really well. Well, Zoltan, that's the end of another podcast. Just thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Take care, my friend. Lovely. All right, mate. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Recycler Podcast with your host, David Connett. If you'd like to check out all our podcasts, please visit therecycler.com.